Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Emily Neumeyer. And today I have the great pleasure to be here in Washington, D.C., speaking with Masume Farhad and Simon Reddig, the chief and assistant curators of Islamic art at the Freer and Sackler Galleries. As many of our listeners may already know, the Freer and Sackler house the national collection of Asian art at the Smithsonian Institution, a collective of museums and educational spaces that frame the National Mall in Washington. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So... Uh, I should say that both uh, Masume and Simon have both uh, curated several lovely exhibitions here at, here at the Freer and Sackler. But today we're going to be talking about their most recent endeavor, uh, which is an exhibition titled The Art of the Quran, Treasures from the Museum of Turkish and Islamic Arts, which is, um, is actually, uh, it's unfortunately about to close <laughs> in about two weeks, right? Uh, so it, uh, it opened in October of 2016 and it will close in a, in a few weeks um, uh, at the end of February. But I still think it would be, it's interesting to talk about this exhibition really at the tail end of, of the run of the show and to hear your reflections, not only on organizing the exhibition, but also the reception of this, of this exhibition um, in the United States and also on a, on a more international level. Turning to the subject of this exhibition, Masume and, and Simon, could you uh, could you just say a few words of introduction about about the exhibition? If if somebody um, were to come to the galleries today, uh, what what's what would they find on display? How is it organized? The exhibition um, includes uh, almost 70, um, 70 works of art. Uh, most of them are from the Museum of Turkish and Islamic Art in Istanbul, who have been tremendously generous in lending us there. Um, really unique treasures. What we've done, we've sub substituted those um, those loans with some 20 works um, of our own. So it's a mixture mixture of um, both um, works that have come from Istanbul and some works that are here. As this is the first major exhibition on the um, on the art of the Quran um, and. Um, we really uh, wanted to focus on the art history of these incredible manuscripts. That really sort of uh, represents the main thrust of the exhibition, is to look at the way the oral tradition, the Quran, was transformed into a written text, the way that the exhibition, the um, the way that the uh, manuscripts are organized, the text is organized, um, and um, the way that they vary in size, scale, according to their uses. But with any exhibition on the Quran, it's impossible not to deal with actually what the Quran is. So um, the way that we have organized it is. Um, is that the, the first thing that the view actually um, experiences is an oral recitation of the first chapter, the Fatiha. The uh, opening. The opening. Um, because we, we thought that it's, it's very important to emphasize the orality um, of the Quran. And it also, it, it sort of puts you in a different frame of mind when you, when you hear the recitation. And then the rest of the um, sort of first floor of the exhibition um, is really devoted to uh, what the Quran is, um, how um, how it's divided up, um, the various chapters, 
And what are the major themes of the Quran? Because we felt it was critical for our audiences to get an int uh, introduction to some basic ideas about the Quran, especially as there's been such misunderstanding and misrepresentation of the text. Um, we thought uh, it was important to first introduce the themes and then look at the aesthetic qualities of these uh, manuscripts. And um, in the second section, um, we we look at more the um, the materiality and the physicality of of these manuscripts, and with this idea of how the the Quran as a as a as a text came into shape. In, came into shape, how it was uh, structured visually, uh, how um, uh, verses were separated one from each other, how um, titles were inserted uh, between chapters, and how the, the text was uh, laid out on the page. And that from, uh, from the earliest uh, times of Islam, so uh, the earliest example we have on view is, uh, I mean, dates uh, probably only a few decades after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, uh, through the sev early 17th uh, century, which is the latest example we have on the show. So we, alongside uh, with like this uh, evolution of format and layout, we display also the uh, how calligraphy came uh, into form and evolved throughout like uh, a millennium and also illuminations uh, so like the art of like sort, sort of like beautifying uh, the word of God um, uh, and how um, also illuminations um, have a um, precise function which is like helping to understand the structure of the of the text mm -hmm. well I think this is a good point to take a, a small break and uh, after the break we'll uh, we'll actually um, head out to the galleries and, and, and talk a little bit about a few examples of, of the Quran, uh, of the Quran uh, exhibition. And uh, yeah, so uh, thanks for listening. So I'm now in the gallery with Simon Reddig, and we are uh, in the galleries talking uh, about a particular object. Uh, Simon, could you, could you tell us a little bit more about what we have right in front of us? So um, it's a copy of the Quran um, completed um, in 1571, uh, yeah, in 1571 by a calligrapher called Ferhat Pasha who was also uh, a vizier and um, married to um, the daughter of um, Prince Mehmet, Huma. And um, this vizier was very, a very skilled calligrapher. And what you see here is like a clear demonstration of his, uh, of his, uh, of his uh, skills uh, in a, uh, it's a manuscript like it looks plain, you know. It's a, it's a copied in a beautiful uh, nasr or nesi, mm -hmm. in a 
in uh, in, uh, in in Turkish, uh, with like the verse uh, separators are like simple like uh, gilded dots. You know the title of the chapters are just written in um, in plain gold uh, in uh, Mohakak uh, script. Um, nothing in the margins. It's just simply framed. It's just like a beautiful plain copy of the Quran, mm -hmm. uh, and we know that. Um, Ferhat Pasha uh, used to uh, sell uh, some of, uh, of his, um, of his um, productions. Mm. Uh, this one in particular is uh, all the more interesting because it was endowed uh, two centuries later by Abdulhamid I to his own tomb mm. and the Quran uh, to his own mausoleum um, and the, this Quran was supposed to be read, you know, on his tomb, uh, as he said, like for the salvation of his, his soul. So he endowed it while he was still alive, meaning that he went, uh, he went into the imperial library in the top capper and selected this volume uh, for, for his tomb. Because Abdul Hamid I was also um, uh, was famous for being a, a, good, uh, a good calligrapher, you know, he had a good hand. So he appreciated like uh, uh, art by um, by older uh, masters, and and you know like Ferhat Pasha was uh, was the pupil of Ahmad Kareisari. So he was like kind of like a, a, a big name, and there is mention of it uh, by Mustakim Zadeh in the Tufehi Altoten. Um, so uh, uh, quite an interesting um, an, an interesting uh, volume like for provides like these layers of histories, you know, pure like Ottoman history here. Mm -hmm. Like um, there is another volume, volume which is in a uh, downstairs uh, that relates also to, uh, to Abdulhamid I. Okay, well, let's go check it out. So Simon, now we're, uh, we're uh, with uh, part two of, this, uh, of these, these two manuscripts. So um, uh, what, do we, what do we have here? So we're looking at a single volume Quran copied by Yakut and Mustasimi. Um, Yakut um, is probably one of the most famous calligraphers of all time. Um, uh, he lived in the, in the late uh, 13th century. Uh, he uh, witnessed the Mongol invasions and, uh, you know, allegedly the destruction of Baghdad. Um, and uh, he's famous um, among the calligraphers because it is said that he recodified the, uh, the six scripts uh, used for copying the Quran, you know, the Aklemesite. Um, and uh, here it's one of the few genuine copies we know um, by him. Uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, forgeries uh, especially in the Timurid period. Um, um, this one is, uh, is original. It's written in a very refined uh, Reihan script. Um, and, you know, like, um, Yakut is famous because he was, like, trim, trimming the nib of his pen in a particular way that allowed him to um, trace, like, a stroke that was um, half a millimeter wide. So, like very, very thin, uh, very, very thin strokes. 
Um, so very, a very refined yeah, aesthetic. Very refined aesthetics, and also, you know, the way he placed um, the um, the words on the lines, so the rhythm he creates, it, which is very novel. Um, you see, like it's like lavishly uh, illuminated with all these uh, medallions uh, in the margin, indicating like the uh, every tenth and uh, fifth verse, uh, verses. You can see that the illuminations are uh, contemporaneous with the with the copy, uh, but the framing lines, the framing lines were added uh, later and probably at the time of when the manuscript was remounted onto a new binding. And you have that extraordinary binding with like filigree leather, um, mainly uh, blue and, uh, and gold uh, design that is probably a 15th century work from Tabriz. So we know that the manuscript traveled from Baghdad, where it was made, completed, uh, to, um, to Tabriz and, uh, and then it reached Istanbul, you know, later on. We, we don't know when, but what is interesting is that uh, we have a um, primary source, the Tarire Alame Araye Amini by Isfani Khunji, written in the late 15th century, in which um, the author says that Yakub Beg Akoyunlu offered to the Mamluk Sultan Qaybey for his enthronement uh, a copy of the Quran by Yakut, written in Rehan script. Mm. And it is possible that we are looking at this copy that was sent then from Tabriz to Cairo, oh. and eventually when the Ottomans conquered Egypt, the manuscript reached Istanbul. So my head's spinning a little bit. So we just went from Baghdad to Tabriz to Cairo, and then finally Istanbul. Yes. And now Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> Not for long, just for long. <laughs> two weeks back to Istanbul. But what is interesting in Istanbul, the manuscript um, so probably ended in the imperial library, in the top cover, but it was then endowed by Mahmoud II to the tomb of his father, uh, Abdulhamid I. And um, we, we saw that previous example by Ferhat Pasha, endowed by uh, Abdulhamid I to, to his own mausoleum. Here we have an, another example, it's by a son, so Mahmoud II, and during this Quran, which is like so rare because it's copied by Yakut, you know, that's famous calligrapher, to the tomb of his father, who was a really um, knowledgeable calligrapher also, uh, so that he would have appreciated uh, uh, this, this copy endowed to, uh, to, to, in, to, his, to his tomb. And that tells you about like, a bit about like the politics of endowments, you know, uh, from one sultan to, um, to another, and that other individuals would endow to, uh, to relatives or uh, to sometimes like, you know, vizier or pashas like copies, co copies of the Quran. It was not a, only a personal uh, thing, to, thing to do, which is quite interesting.
So we're standing in the gallery at the Art of the Quran show at the Fir Sackler, uh, Queens and Princesses. So uh, I think we have an example here of uh, uh, a great, an interesting example of women's, women's patronage uh, in the Ottoman court. So uh, if, if you could uh, say a few words, Masume, that, that would be great. So uh, this is a Quran, um, actually from Safavid Iran, from the late 16th century, uh, from uh, the city of Shiraz, where a great number of Qurans were produced uh, and exported to actually the Ottoman Empire. The person who owned this Quran was Nurbanu, um, the, um, the wife of Selim II. And she acquired it in the early 18th century and then endowed it to the Atik Valide uh, Mosque in Istanbul. And this is sort of typical of, the, um, of, of, of what happens with many of these Korans, especially um, acquired by, by women. They would be then endowed to um, public institutions. As you know, Nurbanu was um, very... Um, very influential, um, like uh, many other Ottoman women, and she was um, uh, critical in opening and maintaining relationships with Europe, uh, especially with the uh, Medicis, uh, with Catherine the Medici, and apparently um, one of the requests that she had from Catherine the Medici was a particular lapdog, which they had this uh, <laughs> incredible exchange going back and forth. But she was also a great, um, patron of both art and architecture, and uh, clearly um, of Qurans. Now, um, as we talked about the history of these um, um, uh, Qurans that, that, and their endowment um, that is contained in the manuscripts, um, this is a very good example because at some point in its history, the Manuscripts, manuscript was um, was uh, transferred to the uh, mosque for near, nearby mosque uh, by Mehrimah Sultan. Mm. So we don't exactly know why. Um, perhaps they were in need of a of a of a Quran. We don't know. But again, we have the story of these um, of these um, uh, of these manuscripts uh, in many cases very well. Uh, recorded, and we can build their biographies. Mm. And you were mentioning uh, uh, Nurbanu Sultan's uh, relationship with uh, some of the uh, great uh, Western uh, uh, dynasties, but also, as you mentioned, uh, she, clearly with the, this Quran, she had uh, also connections with uh, art markets uh, to the east with the Safavids. So could you, could we talk a little bit more about, about what we have in front of us? This is a brilliant uh, double page uh, of, of, this is the, the frontispiece. Well, actually what it is, the, 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 um, this is a very unusual design from Safavid Iran where every line of text is set in a, um, in a rectangular box of a different color. Um, so the overall visual effect is quite psychedelic. And the, the double page actually marks the exact center of the manuscript. And in, um, in the 16th century, especially with the Safavids in Iran, um, uh, illumination becomes very elaborate. Um, the size of the manuscripts grow. Um, they seem to be 
specializing, especially in Shiraz, in these sort of grand, um, sort of showy uh, copies of manuscripts, and this is certainly uh, one of them. And uh, it seemed to be ideally suited for display. It would be something to be brought out on a special occasion. Um, you would, of course, you could use it, um, but at the same time, it was impressive, and it, uh, in many ways, represented uh, Nur Banu's sort of um, piety and devotion, and the fact that she was willing to endow such a grand uh, copy of the Quran to the mosque. Thank you. Welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. Again, I'm Emily Neumeyer, and I am here with Masume Farhad and Simon Reddig talking about their latest exhibition, uh, The Art of the Quran, uh, now on display at the Freer and Sackler Galleries in Washington, D.C. So welcome back. For this part of the episode, I thought let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the significant collaboration between two institutions, the Smithsonian and the Turkish and Islamic Art Museum in Istanbul, of which I think uh, many of our listeners have visited and are, are quite familiar with. So if you could talk a little bit mo more about um, the process of, of organizing this exhibition and working with the Turkish and Islamic Art Museum, um, that, that would be great. Um, in 2010, uh, the uh, Museum of Turkish and Islamic Art actually organized a major exhibition of their Qurans. And it right. was the really the first time that they had put on display, um, I think, over 100 of their really finest um, uh, manuscripts. And I heard about this by accident, and I thought it was... Um, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so I went to see the exhibition, and I was um, completely sort of overwhelmed by um, by the works on view. I had a um, casual conversation um, with um, the with the curator about um, the um, the possibility of of doing something. On a much smaller scale in the United States, I sort of I said it would have been um, it would be really wonderful um, um, to try to borrow perhaps one or two hmm. um, of such manuscripts. Start, start off with your expectations <laughs> <laughs> small, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and um, Sevgi Kutulai, who who um, who um, was the curator sort of looked at me and she said, well, why not? Let's go and talk to the director. And we did. And to my delight and surprise, he was very receptive as well. And he said, well, yes, let's talk about it. And it sort of seemed that he was thinking perhaps more than one or two. Uh, so I discussed it, of course, with with our director. He went to see the exhibition and um, also thought it would be an incredible opportunity to actually do an ex exhibition like that. But, you know, it just seems such a remote possibility um, that we didn't want to get too excited about it. But I, I sent in my wish list, which I have to say was was um, quite elaborate. I mean, I, I, I put all the great masterpieces and um, the museum actually agreed to almost all of them. Well, yeah. And then we we started going through all the various steps. As you know, 
um, actually at that time, this was in 2000, this was in 2010, 11 by this time. And the museum was, was actually going to celebrate its centenary in 2014. So they thought that it would be nice to have an exhibition at the same time in, in Washington. Mm-hmm. And we agreed in principle, but they were also undergoing renovation at that time. Right. And as you know, with any, with any renovation, unfortunately, it always takes longer than you expect. Yes. So in their case, actually, they were not able to open in 2014 and um, because they uncovered part of the hippodrome on the, in their, you know, in their um, sort of um, foundation. As it happens often in yes. Istanbul. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and it was very difficult to have the renovation, have the reinstallation, and then also mm-hmm. Um, do an exhibition with us. So as a result, we postponed the exhibition, but um, throughout the time, um, the museum could not have been more generous and more um, open to our ideas. I mean, we we, uh, we were allowed to see everything. Um, there were no issues with the way that we wanted to organize the exhibition because the way that they had organized the exhibition was actually chronological. And we didn't want to do that. That was fine. They um, they really allowed us to really do our own show based on mm-hmm. uh, based on their collection. And I sort of thinking back, I I'm actually quite amazed by their generosity and also by their sort of approach uh, in in letting us giving us free hand um, to do what we would. Um, like to do. And I, I will just interject and say here that the, the Turkish and Islamic Art Museum, the Türkve Islamist or the Musesi, has indeed opened uh, since, uh, since since the renovation. And um, I encourage all of our listeners to go. Um, it's, a, it's a fabulous reinstallation with uh, all kinds of video displays. And um, so check it out. Could you could you say a few more words about the the foundation of the Turkish and Islamic Art Museum? Because I, I, it's, a, it's really of great interest for people uh, for not only art history but also for the history of museums in late Ottoman, uh, the late Ottoman Empire, which uh, is is definitely a, a very much a hot topic at the moment uh, with work by uh, by Wendy Shaw and Ed Hamaldem. So yes, and very briefly, yeah. um, because there is a wonderful essay by Ed Hamaldem on the genesis of the museum in the um, exhibition catalog, and in, in which he really um, he demonstrates how the Ottoman state, um, you know, at the eve of the uh, First World War was sort of like struggling to uh, to maintain its authority uh, throughout the empire. And that was the time there was a lot of thefts in, uh, in religious institutions and how they decided to not repatriate, but to bring to Istanbul in one sole place all the treasuries kept in these institutions mm. and um which includes like uh over like i think 15000 uh manuscripts and uh among them 3 or 4000 um copies of the quran we don't know the exact number mm-hmm. um but um and over a period of uh, it took like 10 15 years i think to uh to uh to uh to bring them all although the museum officially opened in uh in 1914 
but like in the late uh, in the late uh, 20s, I think so after the uh, the creation of the republic, uh, manuscripts and objects were still coming in, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, I mean it was like an endeavor of like several decades. Yeah, so this institution is interesting in that it actually bridges, uh, as, as many institutions do, it, 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 it bridges the, the late Ottoman into the, the Turkish Republic. So, and that's exactly Republican the time. Period. I mean, it was founded um, and it opened first in the in the soup kitchen of the Suleymaniye mm-hmm. complex as the uh, Museum of Islamic Endowment. Mm-hmm. And um, with, the, uh, with the creation of the Republic, I mean, the year the year after, in 1924, uh, it became uh, the Museum of Turkish and Islamic Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it didn't move to its uh, uh, current location, which is in the Ibrahim Pasha Palace. On the Hippodrome. Uh, on the Hippodrome. On the uh, Before 1983, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. So Fairly um, recent. One other thing that is important um, to add is that um, when, we, when you look at the collection of the Museum of Turkish and Islamic Art, in a way you're also looking at a an, an royal Ottoman collection. I mean, yes. there is the top couple, of course, mm-hmm. but these manuscripts, not only manuscripts, but also the carpets and the, the, um, uh, the candlesticks and the other objects that are, that are in the Museum of Turkish and Islamic Art. In the in the in the book holders, you mm-hmm. know the, these sort of book, very stands. book stands, book stands, and these really also just elaborate and beautifully made pieces of furniture for containing mm-hmm. um, these, mm-hmm. these. So so these manuscripts. So these were um, these were objects that were commissioned by members of the royal family, many of them women, but also. Um, um, they were collected by by viziers, by you know high-ranking eunuchs, by by of course again the sultan and his family. So um, when you when you when you look at the holdings again, it gives you also in addition sort of a glimpse into Ottoman collecting. Do you perhaps have one example you you that comes to your mind of uh, that really encapsulates for you the story of uh, Ottomans, the Ottoman royal family collecting earlier Quran manuscripts and endowing them, and, and sort of really getting at maybe telling the life of of these objects that <laughs> to 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 get anthropological. Well, what what was um, staggering and new for us, I mean, for Masume and and myself when we were you know going through these manuscripts at it's like uncovering the several layers of history yes. that they had, you know, and uh, because we realized that the Ottomans wouldn't endow a, a, a new copy of the Quran to to an institution, right? That copy had to had to be old, or like mm. you know. So um, interestingly, they, they are all ancient, not ancient, but they, they were made. At least several decades uh, prior to to their uh, um, final endowment, right, and so um, we have Timurid Qurans, we have Mamluk Qurans being endowed by Ottoman by Ottomans, being by like the Ottoman royalty av- to and being avidly collected by yes. the Ottomans. Yes, and yes. one of the most and if not the most um, 
superb example is the is the um Uljay to um Baghdad Quran I mentioned mm-hmm. previously. Mm-hmm. Um so which was made for the uh Mongol Sultan Uljay to between uh, 1307 and 1314 and which was endowed uh to to his tomb. I mean by the uh, Uljay to endowed the Quran to his tomb in Sultanie. And we know that um um Suleiman um Suleiman uh, when he was campaigning in Iran uh in 1533 you know uh stayed in Sultanie and he was with uh Rustem Pasha and uh, Shehzade Mehmet mm-hmm. and they brought back with them you know uh volumes that were kept in the tomb right and uh, interestingly they don't they didn't take the whole Quran so the 30 volumes but only mm. a few of them and one ended up in the um, in the imperial library in the top cover but um others like um bear the seal of uh Shezade Mehmet and one of them was endowed to the tomb of the prince by Rustem Pasha and there is a vakfiye you know in the in the manuscript yeah, uh, a document of pious endowment yes saying that uh, Rustem Pasha endowed to the tomb of the prince uh, that volumes or these volumes, mm-hmm. but there is a later note, like I did, like two years later, uh, by Rustem Pasha saying that he is upset because uh, he noticed that people were taking leaves out of the copy, oh. so he moved mm. these volumes to uh, the mosque of his wife, Suleiman's daughter uh, Mihrima, and there something happened. Uh, we don't know exactly when, but mm-hmm. like by the late 17th century these volumes were like taken apart remounted uh in sort of like disorder like you have several fragments of sections put together and one of the volumes ended up in leipzig you know mm. in 1694 mm. mm-hmm. whereas the other volume was brought back to the tomb of shezade mehmet mm. mm-hmm. so with one with one volume you have like five or six hundred years of histories and um and that's what we try to present in the last sections of uh of the uh, of the exhibitions and how this idea of collecting and uh, endowing uh quran's uh, manuscript worked in uh in the uh, ottoman empire yeah this issue of collecting i think is is really important because oftentimes with manuscript studies uh historians of manuscripts i i think uh, the tendency is to focus on what i call you know the er moment the the moment of, of initial production and uh but in many cases um uh it overlooks the sort of the much longer uh lives that these manuscripts after lives that these manuscripts had um not only in the ottoman empire but also you know now now um as 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 an object in a museum um i think it would be interesting for our listeners to talk a little uh, if you could talk a little bit more about um uh how do you what are some ways we can piece together these stories um the lives of these manuscripts in the manuscripts themselves you know in terms of um uh what kind of notices, what kind of uh, pieces of information we can get um, from the object to, to reconstruct these stories, to do an archaeology of these manuscripts, um, and also in terms of um, what kind of archival material we have. You, you mentioned a few a few things, um, but if you could talk a little bit more about that. Having the, the privilege of working with this collection um, and actually going through 
the copies of the Quran, which um, was really, um, I mean, I think for both Simon and myself was, was, was really sort of revelatory because we sort of noticed things that hadn't been noticed or actually probably had, no, had not been seen because I'm not sure how often anybody had gone through uh, many of these, um, of these Qur'ans. And also given the fact that these Qur'ans had been kept in various mosques and mausoleums around the Ottoman Empire, they were, you know, they were safeguarded. Like, uh, unlike other manuscripts that are in Western collections that had been sort of taken apart and are only fragmentary, with these manuscripts you could tell their story or mm -hmm. you could reconstruct their um, biography because, for instance, by looking through the manuscripts, you would find seals, you would find inscriptions, you know, librarians' inscriptions, but also in, in many cases, you know, endowment notifications. Like, for instance, when uh, a manuscript was given as endowment to an institution, there would be notes saying, um, it should be used for recitation. It should be used for teaching orphans, etc. Mm. So, um, you know, or at least by by looking inside the manuscript, um, you would get a sense of how it was supposed to be used. And of course, then you um, look at these manuscripts in the context of all the amazing endowment um, documents that are now being published and so many scholars um, of Ottoman history are now looking at. So now you piece the two together and you get this really rich mm. um, picture of uh, the, the role and function of the Qurans you mentioned, especially in their afterlife. Yes. I mean, yes, they were created and in some cases we know who they were created for, but what sort of struck both of us, what was interesting is how these manuscripts changed hands. Who acquired them? Which sultan or which vizier? And then what did they do with that? I mean, with the, with the Old Jaitu Quran, it's sort of, um, again, it's sort of classical um, in that, you know, Suleiman had it, then Mehmed, you know, had it, Rustam Pasha had it, it ended up in Mehrama's uh, mausoleum. So, and and that we were able to piece together again through endowment inscriptions, seals, and sort of knowing uh, um, about the history of, of, of the period and sort of put it, putting all the, uh, again, the different pieces um, in order to create a full um, picture. To what extent in the in the collection that's on display, to what extent do you see any evidence of efforts to on the on the behalf of the Ottomans efforts to repair or conserve these older manuscripts during during the Ottoman period at the moment of endowment? Do you see any evidence for this? Well, there is written evidence uh, within the manuscripts, uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, especially uh, from the 18th century onward. Um, we have notes um, by um, uh, a, f a person who is called the inspector of the two holy cities endowments. And Mecca and Medina, of course. Yeah, and uh, Mecca and Medina, and who also um, supervised the 
what is called the Imperial Endowments Treasury. And that person, like, usually depended, like, um, on the sultans, like, directly from the sultans. And uh, there, there are a few copies um, in which uh, the inspector, you know, um, provided the, uh, the dates of um, repair and mending made, uh, made mm. uh, to a manuscript. And, for instance, there is a, a beautiful uh, late 15th century Mamluk Koran, Made uh, made for uh, Amir Kansu, who was the uh, master of the stables of Sultan Qaid Bey, and so the manuscript was um, taken to uh, from Cairo to Istanbul. We don't know when, but there is an there is a note by Ali Shefik Bey, who was so the um, this uh, overseer uh, of the imperial uh, treasury under Sultan Abdul Majid the first. And he said in that note that he added a new cover. He, um, I mean, he repaired the cover. He mended pages. Uh, he replaced the missing folios. And uh, you can see in the manuscripts, like at the at the end, like folios were missing, so they were mm. replaced. And they regilded the illuminations as well. Mm. Mm. So that just proved that constant care of the manuscripts under the Sultan's authority. Yeah. So these manuscripts were probably in the imperial library in the top cafe in the top cafe before being endowed to uh, to institutions, mm-hmm. and so they would go th- they would go through first a sort of like ministry of manuscripts before being endowed. Can I just add a footnote about patronage? Okay, because sure. <laughs> one thing that we um, that we noticed as we were going through these manuscripts is the importance of women in Mm -hmm. acquiring these manuscripts and endowing them both to their own uh, monuments um, but also to that of others. And they were very active in acquiring Qurans, acquiring libraries, and, and really sort of sending them around to various institutions. And in that way, um, sort of feel that um, the the women's v- voices were being heard because they determined again how these manuscripts should be used, how they should be used for recitation, how they should be used for teaching, and I think that's a very important aspect of the use and dissemination of these manuscripts. Thank you for that, and of course, one of the uh, significant events that have happened on the National Wall. Uh, uh, in the la- past few weeks, of course, is the Women's March on Washington. <laughs> <Of course. laughs> uh, I, how 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 could I neglect that? Anyway, um, so so thank you, um, thank you for for um, bringing that to, into the conversation as well. So to 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 turn to start uh, to wrapping up the conversation, I I I I'd like to ask, um, you know, you 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 mentioned that this exhibition, like most large-scale exhibitions, have been many years in the making. And when you started planning this, when was it, 2010 or something something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, when you started planning this, there's no way you could have anticipated this exhibition coming um, uh, into this uh, current political climate. Uh, so while the, as I mentioned, the show has been up from October um, and is going down um, in a few in a few weeks, in February, the end of February. So in the meantime, we've had um, a U.S. presidential election. We've had an inauguration, um, and we are now into a, a new uh, a new new presidency. 
um, here in Washington, D.C., not not just a stone's throw away, really. So why you couldn't anticipate that, um, that, that, that has been the case. And what could you say a few words about your reflections on what this show means? What, what do you see as your role as, as the curators of, of this exhibition at the Fair Sackler, on the National Mall, in Washington, D.C., in this political climate where um, there's a lot of tension and misunderstanding and um, debate about the role of Islam and, and Muslims in our, in our country? Well, I think even in, 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 in 2010, when you, or 2011, or when we started thinking of this exhibition, I mean, Islam was, was already sort of being discussed at length. And so, um, I mean, I think we, we sort of knew that, that it could be controversial. Um, of course, um, you know, it, it, things just escalated more and more but but actually I have to admit when we decided on the date of 2016 it didn't even cross our mind that it was an election year and mm-hmm. maybe that was stupid but you know we didn't think about it and um, what what has been uh, remarkable that both Simon and I have had the support of the Smithsonian through and through we we had a meeting with the sort of the top administration to discuss this exhibition, as you know, we, we have a board of regents that includes the chief justice and also um, and also actually the vice president. And they were informed about this exhibition. Uh, this was this was prior to the recent elections. And um, everybody gave their okay. So in that respect we were um, we're very lucky the um, the secretary of the Smithsonian has been promoting the exhibition and has been very supportive. Um, of course, uh, when we opened the exhibition, um, it was it was still before the election, but 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 Islam was very much on the front page. It was being discussed um, by both candidates, and while we really didn't know what to expect, I think. Now, thinking back, the timing could not have been better mm-hmm. because it, the exhibition offered for the first time here at the Smithsonian on the mall where we had the inauguration and we had the Women's March. Um, it offered a different perspective on the Quran. Yeah. And it, for, th- for those people who came to see the exhibition, um, and we've had record attendance and people actually uh, spent actually quite a long time, longer than usual, reading the labels and looking at the objects. So we feel that those who've made the effort to come and learn um, that hopefully they have left with a different understanding and appreciation of the of the Quran. And um, as you get, as we all know, day by day things you know, escalate and 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 there's yet another crisis. So, again, I we both feel that um, the timing has been very fortunate, and um, in a way, we couldn't have timed it better. Well, I think it's very safe to say that uh, whether we could have anticipated it or not, this exhibition is certainly an event of our time, and I certainly appreciate your work and all your effort in organizing this exhibition and also, of course, for 
um, sitting down, taking the time and, and, and talking, uh, talking with us uh, to about the show. So thank you very much for your time. Um, it was a pleasure. And uh, I will say for our listeners that um, as, uh, as uh, Simon brought up during, during, the, uh, during our conversation, uh, there is an exhibition catalog uh, that, accompanies, uh, that accompanies the show. Um, that uh, even uh, afterwards, I think uh, I think our listeners uh, will would like to follow up and look at some of the essays and and the catalog uh, catalog entries um, um, in conjunction with the exhibition. We'll have more information about that on the website, including um, some images um, from the galleries, um, and that will all be available on our website at www.automahistorypodcast.com. And again, thank you for listening. I'm Emily Newmeyer. Take care.